should not, Mr. Venus. No, but it's small stuff. It gets so boring. It's all about small stuff. You know, small lies, small mistakes. People give themselves away, same in misdemeanors as they do in murder cases. It's just human nature. Well, aren't you gonna write that down? <laughs> Hi, and welcome to Friends at Dusk, a Christopher Nolan filmography podcast. I'm your co-host, Marshall Doig. And I'm your other co-host, Jake Harris. And tonight we are discussing insomnia. Are we going to be discussing it all night because insomnia and yeah, the, the joke's not. really going to get worse from here. I hope. <laughs> <laughs> Although I um, wish it was a little bit more. I don't know. I like the, what is it? Spring forward. Fall, I don't know what it is. Daylight savings. I like the winter version more, but I would like a little bit more sunlight in the day. So. I'll easily take the manufactured extra hour of sleep. Yes, exactly. That was what I was hoping for when we switched over earlier. So that's nice. Yeah. But yeah, so what's uh, what's going on in your world? What is going on this week? Well, as our usual Nolan-related openers go, I didn't have anything until today. I was watching the World Cup and the <laughs> name on the back of a shirt for a Mexico player caught my eye. And the last name was Funes Mori. So there is a player who oh, plays on the Mexican national team called Rogelio Funes Mori. And that made me think back a few episodes with the Jorge Luis Borges short story, Funes the Memorius. So that's some kind of Easter egg that Nolan can sneak into a movie somehow, some way, sometime in the future. It's perfect. When he makes his next Batman or superhero movie and something happens at a sporting event, it'll be at a soccer match. Yeah. That was and, a good uh, match today, though. I, I went deeper on this guy, too. Looked at his Wikipedia page. He plays for Mexico, oh. but he was born in Argentina, which neighbors oh, Uruguay, which there we go. There is we where go. the short story originally took place. So, <laughs> yeah. There's so much more about Funes today. There's a Funes in the World Cup. Actually, not anymore because Mexico's out. But there was a Funes in the World Cup. And mine is, again, also kind of like that, not really. Well, you have this one, too. Um, it's more in the world of Christopher Nolan and not really a spoiler or a news event for anything going on with him. But at the time of this recording, this morning, Spotify wrapped uh, just debuted. So everyone got to see exactly how Spotify is tracking your data. But they wrapped it up into a nice little fun Instagram slideshow. So it's fun. But um uh, my top artist for 2022 was Hans Zimmer. And that's because I, if I get into a groove at work, I just listen to the same album over and over and over. And most of the time it is instrumental music. And this year it was the Dune soundtrack. And so I listened to 657 minutes of that. And I was in the top 2% of listeners for Hans Zimmer. And my top five songs, it's four songs from the latest Wonder Years album, which is really great. If you like pop punk, go check that one out. And then it's called The Hum Goes On Forever. But uh, my number four song was Herald of the Change from the Dune soundtrack. So I was just, you know, listening to all the beats from that movie all year long. But I think you have me beat on that one for Hans Zimmer or for whatever was going on in your Spotify wrapped. Oh, yes. I <laughs> saw everyone's Instagram stories and I saw yours. And I saw Hans Zimmer come up for you. And before I even looked at my Spotify wrapped, I knew 
I mean, I had a very strong idea of what it would be. And I was right. Hans Zimmer was my top artist this year because I just started listening to like all the Nolan soundtracks when I'm, I was thinking about starting this podcast and getting in that groove. And yeah. I saw your 600, what, 90 something minutes. And I thought, ha, ha, <laughs> amateur. Yes. And I was right. I spent 4,092 minutes listening oh, to Hans Zimmer this year. <laughs> so I was in the top 0.5% of Hans Zimmer listeners this year. Oh, and I thought 2% was good for me. Wow. Right. Yeah. So no, no. <laughs> Bow down before the master here. Which, and yeah, uh, four of my top soundtrack? five songs were Hans Zimmer. Or no, actually, four of my top five song tracks were from Christopher Nolan movies. Three of them were actually from Tenet. So that's Ludwig Goranson. Oh, yeah. uh, Number four was from The Dark Knight. And then Hamilton, Alexander Hamilton song from Hamilton cracked in my top three because my my son was listening to Hamilton. Hamilton's still going strong. Yep. And the other weird thing about my Spotify app was I listened to a whole lot of soundtracks this year. So I knew that would be really heavy. So my top five artists were film composers. But the weird thing is somehow... The top genre Spotify tells me for the year was rock for me. I mean, which tracks I do listen to a lot of rock, but how with those top five artists and the top songs and everything, how the top genre was rock beats me. So I mean, if anybody understood the the algorithms and the numbers, we'd, uh, they wouldn't be able to make money off of us. So (laughs) exactly. Apparently they only track your listening from, well, they track your listening all the time, but for Spotify wrapped, they only do it from, uh, January 1st, October 31st. So I'm assuming that as we get deeper into everything, especially for the Batman movies, that number for me is going to get slightly larger, especially with the Dark Knight soundtrack. Yes. (laughs) Yes. So in other stuff that we are doing outside of this podcast, what are you uh, watching, reading, consuming in media besides Christopher Nolan movies? Yeah, so I am... Full on in Christmas right now. Thanksgiving ended, Black Friday arrived, and I've been watching all the Christmas specials with the family. You know, Charlie Brown Christmas, the Frosty the Snowman. I saw the Frosty the Snowman, yeah. And Home Alone. So my son's been enjoying those. And every year I doggedly pursue by making it a family tradition of reading a Christmas carol throughout the Christmas season. And Every year I kind of just read it and no one pays attention because we've got toddlers and now uh, a baby <laughs> and everyone just does their own thing while I sit there and read and do small attempts at voices. And I feel just sometimes kind of sad because I'm like, I'm giving a great performance for everyone. Doesn't anyone appreciate this? Also Christmas. Eh, keep so, it up and they'll, they'll look back on it and realize it was a, a good, good memory. Yeah. That's why yeah, I'm yeah. stubbornly staying the course, despite feeling sometimes ignored, but it's okay. I'll make <laughs> it through. <laughs> Otherwise, yeah, I haven't been doing too much, just trying to keep up with holiday things. And I do need to uh, issue, not really a correction, but I was talking about that Franz Ferdinand podcast last episode, and mm-hmm. stupidly, I didn't name it. <laughs> I did oh. <laughs> put the link in the show notes because I felt bad and I didn't have time to record a little addendum in there. But the name of the Franz Ferdinand podcast that I was raving about is called Words So Leisured, lyrics from one of their first hit starts of pleasure. So 
the name of the podcast by Franz Ferdinand for anyone who wanted to know and didn't notice the link in the show notes. It's called Words So Leisured. <laughs> so you can get on that. What about you, Jake? What have you seen? I have been uh, hitting up the movie theater a lot lately. Excellent. Uh, November, December timeframe. So a lot of the, you know, the awards season type stuff uh, is coming out. And so real quick, I'll go through some of the the three best ones that I've seen recently. Uh, first one is The Fablemans, which is Steven Spielberg's latest, which the trailers really make it look like it's a movie about the power of movies, which Hollywood creams their jeans over every year. And it's going to clean up at the Oscars. Yeah, going to win a Might million Oscars. And yeah, does not really do that movie justice at all. Like it's very much uh, he's talked a little bit about how his parents' divorce impacted him as a child and how that impacted his art. Um, and clearly you can see that in stuff like E.T., Close Encounters, pretty much everything that he's he's ever done. That's been the the white whale, not white whale, the albatross that's kind of hung over him uh, his whole career. Um, he never really has quite gotten into the specifics of like what happened and how he experienced that. And so this movie is not called the Spielbergs, I guess maybe out of a liability reason or something, but it's basically Spielberg's childhood and how he learned to make movies and how he experienced his parents' divorce and what happened as he became a teenager and really kind of came into his own making films. And so, yeah, it's about like the power of movies and the power that they have over us and how we, we feel emotionally impacted by them whenever we see them. But it's also just like it's a clinic in cinematography, blocking and one shots and characterization. A lot of really great performances. I loved it a lot. I don't think it's probably going to be in theaters by the time we release this episode. It flopped hard at the box office, probably because everyone thought it was just going to be, you know, a hoity-toity. Here's a guy making a movie about movies, which is sad because Spielberg, you know, made the blockbuster culture that we have today. And now he's. Yeah. People think he's just a snooty auteur putting out a movie about his life, but it's great. Go see that if you can. I think they are trying to move it to, I guess, Peacock because it's a universal movie here pretty soon to streaming. So whenever that shows up on your TV, take a chance on that and watch it. Um, another one, uh, which probably still won't be in theaters at the time of this release because it was getting pretty hard to see in Dallas over Thanksgiving weekend uh, is called The Banshees of Inishirin, Um, And that is a Martin McDonough film, he made Three Billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri, and he also did Seven Psychopaths, uh, and he uh, was in, in Bruges. Bruges. Yeah, in Bruges. And this movie reunites uh, Colin Farrell and Brendan Gleeson from In Bruges. Um, and basically, Colin Farrell plays a man who is just very content to live the simple life on this remote island off the coast of Ireland tend to his donkey, tend to his animals. But every day he goes down to the pub for a pint with his friend, Brendan Gleeson. They've done this for years until one day Brendan Gleeson says that he just, uh, in the words of him, he said, he just, I don't like, I just don't like you no more. And he decides to cut off the friendship because in his words, really, he feels like talking to Colin Farrell is dull and a waste of his time. And he is not getting younger and he wants to contribute something that lasts to the world. And so he's trying to spend more time working on his music instead of talking to Patrick, which is Colin Farrell's character. And it's all set to the backdrop of the Irish Civil War, which they can hear the cannon fire off the coast every now and again. And so it's kind of like a microcosm of how one little small thing can start something much bigger. And then, but once the, 
once you're in it, you're not looking back because of how stubborn you are and how stubborn the other person is. So it's like a mini civil war among these two characters while the actual war is raging. It's very Irish, very bleak, very funny, but very dark comedy and also very sad in the end. But like it looks beautiful, great performances, great score, just fantastic movie all around. So if that comes to streaming at some point in your future, check that out. Um, and then yeah. finally, the Knives Out sequel, which should be on Netflix here by the end of December, is also a lot of fun. That only got released in the theaters for like a week, two weeks maybe, I think, because Netflix, I guess, doesn't want to make money off of theatrical distribution anymore. Yeah, uh, they should qualify for the Oscars. Yes, I think that's the only reason why, which, and I heard, I saw an article today where theater owners were asking Netflix to allow them to show it for longer because... The theater I was in was packed. Everyone was having a blast. Everyone was having fun, laughing at all the right times. And anecdotally, I've heard from some other people and read a lot online that their theater was also the same way. It was, it was a packed house and everyone was enjoying themselves. And why Netflix would want to give that up just to, you know, pipe it through to everyone's homes where they might find it instead of, you know, actually word of mouth. Because the first one was such a huge success just from word of mouth and everyone getting excited about the mystery of it all. But if you like the first Knives Out, you'll probably really love this one. I think it's slightly better than the first one just because of the change of setting and everything. The mystery is a little bit, uh, it's less predictable, but it still has a lot more twists and turns. Still keeps the first one's eat the rich ethos, but it, it's a lot of fun too. So yeah, that's it. That was a, a long-winded way of me just saying I went to the movie theaters a lot over Thanksgiving, <laughs> but... Good. Uh, do check those good. out do check those out whenever you can good i yeah i've all three of those have been on my radar so i'm glad to hear good things about them all yes but we're not here to talk about all the other movies that we've seen in the theater this week we are here to talk about christopher nolan's 2002 remake of insomnia and just a Standard spoiler alert reminder, um, if you haven't seen this movie before we talk about it, we're going to be talking about everything that happens in it. So if you have not watched this yet or the original one, stop that and go back and watch whichever one you want um, and then come back and press play right now. Yeah. I wonder how many people actually have done that. I would wager probably. I don't know. Nobody. We'll see. Probably nobody. If you're listening, okay. I, hope you, I hope you've already seen it, but yeah. Yeah. If you're here, thank you. Yes. Um, but yeah, well... <laughs> Move on to Insomnia again, but different. Yeah, same, released same, in 2002. Yeah, exactly the same, but different. <laughs> Directed by Christopher Nolan, starring, get ready for this, Al Pacino, Robin Williams, and Hilary Swank. In color, 118 minutes. What? Like, what a cast. What a lineup. And then IMDb tells us that two Los Angeles homicide detectives are dispatched to a northern town where the sun doesn't set to investigate the methodical murder of a local teen. So a Northern town, AKA Alaska. So how did you watch this, Jake? Have you seen it before? Uh, yeah, I had seen it before. Um, this was in college. I think I, I found it in like the $5 bin or something and watched it then and didn't really remember much other than I, remember at the time thinking that it was one of his more underrated movies um, and I came away from this viewing confirming that I really think people don't talk about this one enough when they talk about Nolan's movies 
but I rewatched this on the DVD copy that I have. Um, and I want to dive into some of the bonus features that it has. Apparently there's a whole making of documentary on there too that I want to watch, but, uh, yeah, yeah, this is also available. I think you can buy it on iTunes, but I'm not HBO Max. HBO Max for streaming. Yes. Mm-hmm. That is where it is. It's a Warner Brothers picture. It's Christopher Nolan's first studio film. You know, he got on and, yeah. uh, Steven Soderbergh went to bat for him and got, yeah, got yeah, Nolan yeah. the, helped really get Nolan the job. So our first studio picture from Christopher Nolan. Um, this was maybe my third or fourth viewing and I had the Blu-ray it looked really, really great. We'll talk about that. Nice. Uh, and yeah, I agree. Um, the last time I watched it, you know, in 2020, I had forgotten a little bit about it and got reminded how good it is. And again, yeah, this thing is definitely, I'd say, Nolan's most underrated film, but we'll also get to that. But I agree with you. So we're going to do better than we did last time. And we're going to do a quick, a little bit more in-depth-ish plot summary. And we'll get through that quickly. But I'll let you do that, Jake, because you did it last time and you did a good job. Oh, thank you. So it's pretty much, it's not quite a shot for shot and plot beat for plot beat remake of the original Insomnia, but it is used pretty close to the source material. So Al Pacino and... What is his name? What's his partner's name? He's in Martin Donovan. Martin Donovan. They are showing up to a remote town in Alaska. They're two LAPD cops who, in this version, are being investigated by internal affairs for something that they did on a previous case. And it doesn't really let you know that until later when Al Pacino kind of talks about that to the hotel concierge at the place that he's staying at. But they're being investigated by internal affairs and basically they're, uh, you know, go away and you know, lie low for a little bit before the investigation boils over is uh, they're assigned to a murder case in Alaska where they are sent to figure out what happened to a 17-year-old girl who was killed. And that pretty much the beginning uh, scenes are, you know, very, very same, same, but different from the original Insomnia. Instead of driving into town, you're they're flying in over a glacier. Over a glacier. Uh, which is uh, some amazing amazing photography apparently that one was all, the whole movie was filmed in british columbia except for that part which is alaska right um, but the glacier is is alaska and it's just beautiful and haunting all at the same time very bright as bright as the first uh the original movie and so they're arriving and there's a little bit more of a sub like right away you're hit with the partner with martin donovan talking to al pacino about the investigation and how they're you know just trying to be here to solve a murder and then they land and they are met by Hilary Swank, who is a younger member of the police force here, who is um young go-getter trying to break out of investigating just small misdemeanors. And she has read up on pretty much everything that Will Dormer, Al Pacino's character, uh, has done in his career. She even wrote a thesis on him about his crime-solving methods. So she's very eager to learn from him on this case. And it has to be said right away, Al Pacino just looks so tired. He will get even more tired throughout this whole movie, as is it's in, called Insomnia. Uh, yeah, I mean, he's tired. But he just, he looks like he was just beat with the tired stick when he's sitting in that plane chair, just like he's yawning from the get-go. He's probably tired from the investigation that's going on surrounding him, but he just, the man can act exhausted extremely well. 
but uh so they get there and then the intro autopsy scene is pretty much the same as the original as well where they they take a look at the body and he realizes that the killer washed her hair before finding her trimmed her fingernails trimmed her fingernails there's even some kind of the same film flashback techniques employed in this version as well as the first one and so then this movie's won a lot of joke <laughs> comes when Al Pacino wants to find the boyfriend of the the girl as Stellan Skarsgård does in the first one. Uh, yeah. And he was like, yeah, let's go find the kid. Let's go. I want to. And they're like, oh, well, we, we got to wait. We can't just do it now. He's like, no, I want to do it out in the open. I want to go show up at his school in front of his friends. I want to make a scene. I want people to start talking. I want to embarrass him and question him. Where's the school? Let's go. And they're like, well, we we can't do that right now. It's 10 o'clock. Yeah, it's 10 o'clock. And he's like, yeah, damn right. It's 10 o'clock. And Hillary's wife's <laughs> like, no, it's 10 o'clock at, at night, sir. School's <laughs> not in session. Because it is completely light outside the whole time. And that starts Will Dormer's introduction to how there's going to be no darkness throughout this entire movie. And so then it follows where the pretty much cues to the same plot as the first one where they figure out where the killer might be and then they go to a cabin and it is surrounded by fog and we can get into the specifics of how this scene kind of differs a little bit from the first from the original one but the same thing happens uh in a moment of confusion will dormer shoots his partner and then blames it on the unknown killer and then he's trying to dodge the internal affairs investigation then he's trying to figure out who actually killed this girl that he's there to investigate and he's also trying to dodge a second internal investigation this time led by none other than Hillary Swank who is trying to figure out who shot at one of their own officers and then supposedly killed Dormer's partner and so she's trying to put the pieces together and interview him for everything and should um, be and said then, that yeah before they went to the cabin Hap played by Martin Donovan yes uh, Dormer's, that's his name Dormer's partner told Dormer he was going to cut a deal with IA to get out from under that. And Dormer was not happy about that. So that plays into uh, Will's cover up. And I love the moment where he, he shoots him and then he runs over to him, realizes that he's the one that shot him and is probably going to be the one that killed him. And yeah. his first words to him are don't talk, which is, you know, don't talk, save your energy, you're going to die. But also it's everything that he's wanted to say to him so far is, you know, don't open your mouth, just shut up. Mm -hmm. um, so I thought that was a good little turn of phrase there. So then the whole rest of the movie goes on. It's getting lighter and lighter outside. There's no darkness. Al Pacino can't sleep. He is racked by guilt from everything so far. And then he starts to get calls from Robin Williams, who you don't see him until... I want to say an hour into the movie, but you hear him. Yeah. You hear him probably about 35, 40 minutes in where he starts calling Will Dormer's hotel room and uh, starts, starts talking about him and tells him that he knows he saw that Dormer shot and killed Hap. And so they have a little cat and mouse game going on over the phone before they finally meet on a ferry, which is an incredible scene that we'll get into Brilliant. later. And then it keeps going until you learn that, uh, the whole reason that Dormer is being investigated is because he basically planted circumstantial evidence on a, a serial child killer 
And his explanation to the hotel concierge that is asking him about it is he, he says, he's like, it's my job to know when people do this and when they're guilty and when they're not. And this guy was guilty. I knew it, but the jury didn't think so because they had never encountered a child killer before. So, you know, I did what I had to do basically is what he, he said. Right. And the woman is just like, well, you know, like there's two kinds of people that moved to Alaska. Either you're born here or you moved here to get away from something. And I'm not from here. I moved here. So I get it. So the whole time you're led to believe that he maybe had done something crazy. And then by the end, it's, it's a little bit more ambiguous. And then, uh, it ends with him going to find Robin Williams again. They, they end up pinning the murder on the girl's boyfriend, but he knows that that's wrong. And so he goes to find, um, Robin Williams and Hillary Swank has already been hot on the trail and is starting to put two and two together, not just with Robin Williams, but also with Dormer and Hap. And so it all comes to a, a head where Dormer ends up getting shot and killed at the scene with Hillary Swank there and Robin Williams is also there. And then it ends. Yeah. Like, so it's a, it's different ending from the, the original with, uh, Selen Skarsgård just droning on in the distance looking ahead as he drives but yeah and also know. him hillary swank's cop ellie Byrne, <laughs> has figured out and has basically wheedled a confession out of dormer yes. under his extreme duress and sleeplessness that he did indeed shoot half and she she's had, about yes. she has the she has the shell casing evidence that'll prove mm-hmm. it was his gun uh that scene where she finds the bullet on the coastline and the rocks yeah off, that juxtaposition is so good yeah But as Dormer is dying, she's about to throw the shell casing away and said, no, it was an accident. You didn't mean to do it. And she's about to throw it. And he stops her. He says, no, don't lose your way. Mm -hmm. And she puts the shell casing back in the evidence bag. And it's implied that she's going to go forward and and tell the truth. And then he says, let me sleep. And then he dies. And Mm -hmm. that final shot with her standing on that, on that dock or on the the lake house bridge. Man, it's kind of just a very non-standard nolan ending it's so quiet and not it's a fade to black it's not uh it's not abrupt it's not jarring it's it's very um, contemplative and kind of eases you out of what you've just seen so there's a few there's the kind of that general feeling it's it maybe doesn't feel as nolan-esque because it's kind of not i guess we'll get into yeah talking about it now just right into it it's not yeah it's not a puzzle box movie it is just uh it's something more much more familiar it's a yeah, cat and mouse thriller. And I think part of that might be kind of the influence of, he didn't write the original draft of the screenplay. That job went to uh, Hilary Seitz, who yeah, adapted yeah. the original film. Although Nolan does say in the Nolan variations that he had a big hand in rewrites. And apparently he rewrote the, the final draft of the screenplay, but Hillary Seitz got the credit and she worked with him closely and was good with all the changes as he told it at least. But yeah, there is that like, oh, it's like the only film he's done where he hasn't had a screenwriting credit. So I think there's yeah. some of that and it's an adaptation. I think it's apart from the Batman films, it's yeah, it's the only one, had, right? I think it's his only remake. Yeah. Yeah, so, definitely his only remake. So there's that. I mean, everybody's still, it's still done really well. And I, yeah, I personally think the remake is, it worked a lot better for me than, than the original. That was going to be my next question because I came away with this being like, oh, the, I like the remake a lot better. I don't know if that makes me just a dumb American person for not appreciating the, <laughs> the other version, but 
I like the decision to kill Pacino at the end more. I think that has a little bit more of a thematic resonance with it, a little bit more poetic justice, even though they shot two endings, one where he doesn't die. And apparently Pacino was, was not happy about that, but Nolan was like, as long as you shoot it, and tell them that you shot it like it doesn't matter. The studio yeah, is not going to promise you do anything. Yeah, it's the studio's fault. We're blaming the studio yeah. anyway. Yeah, he was That's like, we shot it. We never cut it into the film. It, it's never going to see the light of day. But just so long as they know that it existed at one point, it's fine. But I like the ending a lot more. I would say it's definitely because, you know, it's it's not a puzzle box mystery movie. So then what makes it a Nolan movie? But I think just the fact that it the whole theme is the gray area between right and wrong and what is truth and how ambiguous that can be depending on the circumstance. We get into that a lot with uh, Memento and then like the unreliable narrator stuff where Pacino's kind of just talking a little bit more about his whole life and the case leading up to it. You don't really know what to believe about what he's telling you, especially uh, unreliable narrator with uh, Finch. Both characters kind of towing that line between good and evil and right and wrong and how one person can can look at what Al Pacino did and say no like you know that that's right and in the long run you were justified but then someone else might look at it and say absolutely not like there's no way you should have done don't plan evidence don't do anything like that to jeopardize an investigation so in that regard I think it's very very Nolan-esque where I feel like a lot of his his movies focus on you know what is reality reality is a perception truth is a perception and just here's what it does to people when you explore that but the other big thing that i thought was al pacino is the protagonist in this movie but i really think the character arc goes to hillary swank yeah um because yeah. ellie starts off as just this wide-eyed you know almost ingenue like, oh my God, I studied your work. I wrote a thesis on your your methods. And, you know, please, she's like taking notes on all the little bon mots he says about investigations, yeah. which in the end bites him in the ass because he's like, you know, the smallest pieces are the ones that put people away, both for misdemeanors and murders. Yeah, he's, uh, he's taught exactly, her how to catch him, basically. Yeah, the, I, I love yeah. those conversations because I had forgotten those the first time I had seen them. And I was like, oh man, this is so good because that's exactly what happens. But she goes from that to becoming this kind of I don't think she's jaded but she goes from that to someone who is kind of a little bit more wiser to the ways of the world by the end uh, yeah but you can see the scales falling from her eyes yeah but she's she's not corrupted by it I don't think because the the shadow of her putting the bullet casing in the bag and Dormer telling her you know no don't lose your way she found the fork in the road and she didn't take it and so um, right that's I think that's an interesting way, especially for Nolan, where like most of his movies, you know, don't really have good speaking roles for women. Yeah. Uh, And this one has two of them. I really like that scene with him in the, in the hotel room with, uh, is it Robin Tunney? Is that her? It's uh, Maura Tierney. Maura Tierney. I don't know why I said Robin Tunney. Anyway. Yeah. 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 I think that's another thing I might pin down to the influence of uh, Hillary Seitz writing the scripts originally. But I pretty much yeah, like, sure. noted exactly what you said about Ellie's character arc. You know, so yeah, she goes from this glassy-eyed rookie to maybe not disillusioned, but definitely kind of like, oh, okay, here's how how things might like really work, and here's the kind of the system you have to navigate. Also, a note to Ellie: never meet your heroes. What have we said before? Um, nope, no, 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 no. But yeah, what I love the most was that yeah, they take her to the absolute brink of 
being someone who will repeat that cycle that Dormer was a part of. And then Dormer's the one who helps pull her back and kind of breaks it. And that kind of, for me, with Dormer, like gives him a little bit of redemption because he is this crooked cop who, or at least I think it's implied with that frame up job he did, that fabricating evidence, he was a like totally clean, happened right. yeah. to start. But then in that case, he made that choice. He crossed that line. Actually, in his line about the murderer during that autopsy scene, crossed the line, didn't even blink. You don't come back from that. Um, yeah, yeah, that yeah, yeah. It applies to himself too. It's so good. But just the fact that I also think you asking the question, was it the right choice to have him die at the end? That's that was the main question I was going to ask you. So, but I think yes as well, because yeah, maybe he, maybe he doesn't have to face those consequences. But the final act of his life is to make sure that Ellie tells the truth and doesn't doesn't make the mistake that he did early. So he, like, he breaks the cycle and kind of like Leonard does in Memento by at least engineering his own killing of Teddy, of breaking out of the loop. And right. for me, it, it's a nice, a satisfying ending because the character yeah, gets redemption. He redeems himself to an extent. But more back to Hilary Swank's character, I did was writing a note. I was like, you know, I love her character arc. Maybe it doesn't pass the Bechdel test. Um, <laughs> I checked. It doesn't. But it does build. On... They talk about the dead girl, though. Does that count? There's a site that tracks the Bechdel test make oh, for all okay. these movies and their evaluation. It did not pass. But I remember it has to be named female characters and they have to have a conversation. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. Not right. about their relationship with a man. But this movie, in my opinion, did build on the character of the female detective from the original who's tracking, who's figuring out who shot Vic. And it worked for me. I really loved her performance, Hilary Swank, and thought it did it did really great. While I was looking up the Bechdel test for this movie, I was like, I wonder how it went for the rest of Christopher Nolan's films. Mm-hmm. And the answer is not very well. <laughs> I think there were maybe two out of the 11 that passed the test is The Dark Knight. And even then on the, that page, it was like hotly contested. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. It's the conversation between Ramirez and Gordon's wife. And some people are like, well, actually, she's uh, under arrest from Harvey Dent. She's saying what he wants him to say. So it kind of doesn't count. And so they technically counted it. And then I think Interstellar passed, but only by virtue of grown up verse conversation with, with her brother's wife over dinner. I think. Oh, yeah. So it's a really rough ride. <laughs> but that isn't to yeah. say, you know, we have, no. I think this one, I went down a little rabbit path. And so there's the Bechdel test. And then someone came up with the Mako Mori test for the character from Pacific cool. Rim. Really fun movie. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. Love that movie. But for a character, a female character who kind of is the only major female character in the movie, but she has her own arc that isn't defined by or or her narrative serves to bolster a male character's narrative arc. She has her own journey. So in this case, I'd say that Ellie's story here definitely passes the Mako Mori test. And I think that's a good thing too. I had never heard of that one. I'll have to look that one up and figure that yeah. out. I found out about it from Wikipedia. So uh, no. <laughs> I don't know how, how well known it is, but it's a thing is to find. It has a Wikipedia article and I'm running with it. <laughs> But yeah, the characters in this movie compared to the original one were a lot more relatable. I mean, not Finch because he's crazy killer guy, but (laughs) 
just being able to yeah, connect with the movie, there's, I think I wrote here, they took the completely dead inside original film and they turned it into a satisfying Hollywood blockbuster. And that's kind of really impressive to me. Uh, yeah. The biggest credit I think I can give to it is that it goes back to Nolan's discussion about movies shifting your point of view to cheer for someone doing bad things. And yeah, I'm on Will Dormer's side in this, really. I'm I'm hoping he catches the killer, but I'm also hoping like, oh, okay, wait, is he going to get, are they going to nail him for this internal affairs thing? Is Ellie going to find out? So it does shift the POV for a morally compromised character, and it worked here. And it, it did not really work for me for the original. The other one, I was just yelling at Stellan Skarsgård and generally like, what are you doing, man? Yeah, I was much more apt to give Dormer the benefit of the doubt here on this one. Which, you know, you could chalk up to, and I think I talked about this in the last one, but the uh, American Hollywood fascination with, uh, you know, anti-heroes and, you know, you're supposed to root for the the crooked cop who does a good thing every now and again, but he's he works outside the law because his job requires it. But uh, in this one, there is no dead dog and there is no sexual assault of a teenage girl in order to get information. <laughs> Thank goodness. In this one, he just plays chicken with an 18-wheeler and she rightfully gets mad at him and cusses him out for it. But uh, he isn't trying to feel her up on the ride. Yeah. One of a couple of characters asking what the hell's wrong with him. Yeah. There's a yeah, lady he almost hits with a card too. Yeah. And this one definitely, it's like kind of like The Shining where you can kind of tell something's off with Jack Nicholson from the get-go. With this one, you just, you see how tired and exhausted he is on the plane and you're like, there's nowhere to go but down for this guy. And then yeah. he's, the crazier he gets and the deeper he goes, uh, especially in that scene where he holds the gun to bench his head and threatens to kill him after getting rid of the the tape of the conversation the that he had the yeah. wild card he's in full like i know you haven't seen heat yet uh, and we'll get to that later in this series but he is in full heat mode here just yelling and screaming and get crazy eyes like it's it's great but he's channeling his inner will graham didn't you didn't you yes i yeah <laughs> that scene there's even a you know there's even a scene where he's looking at the not autopsy photos but he's looking at crime scene photos on the plane i don't know if that was a nice little nod to manhunter or not oh yeah yeah but yeah just like in the original insomnia the uh it's very much a, a lector graham relationship between finch and dormer here as well and man robin robin williams man let's let's talk about robin williams in this movie Ooh, man. um this is one of i think only maybe three including this one I think only three movies where he really did against type. He's got this one. He's got one hour photo, which also came out this year, 2002. And right. then I have not seen Final Cut, which I think I could be wrong about this. Let me double check really quick if he's the bad guy in this one or not. For a second, I thought you were going to say License to Wed. He's a, apparently a bad guy. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> the evil, evil priest. I have not seen Final Cut, so I don't know if he's the villain or not. But again, that's a movie where he's not really like, he's not doing the genie in human form. He's not Mrs. Doubtfire. Uh, he's right. not, you know, Good Morning Vietnam. And that one came out two years after this. So this kind of kicks off a period of him either playing against type or playing just a straight up villain. I think he, he succeeds at it really well here. Oh, very much so. Because it, it takes everything you know about him like the goodwill hunting it's not your fault scene like he plays everything like kind of at that register like the scene on the ferry he's always very calm 
very even keeled. Like he could be talking to you about, you know, the weather or what he had for lunch or something and not about how he killed this girl and threw her body in a trash bag and took it to a dump to get rid of it. You know, he never loses it during this movie. Actually, he's always no. even during the final shootout. He's always just in a way that makes it more scary. This guy just he has just just one frequency and it's yeah. just yeah. <laughs> It's, it's a so, bit of a Hannibal about him, kind of. Mm, like just like sociopathy. Yeah. It's so, so good. But he, um, yeah. And the biography about him that was released after he died, uh, there's a little brief mention of this movie and this period of his life and how just how excited he was to be able to be doing stuff where he wasn't expected to make people laugh all the time, where he was, you know, kind of being able to show off his more, more dramatic range. And I really think it, it's the same thing of, Jordan Peele is a good horror director because he understands comedy so well, because comedy is such a, it's all about timing and you have to know when the punchline is going to hit and you have to know, like anticipate when the laugh breaks are going to be, and then move on to the next thing. Um, mm -hmm. and horror is the same way. Like you got to know how to time a jump scare. You've got to know exactly how much suspense is there. And Robin Williams is, he's so great at comedy and so great at getting that emotion out of you that he can kind of just like take that and do the inverse where you're just equally creeped out by him as you are ready to give him a laugh like the fact that you don't see him first you just hear him it's kind of like the shark in jaws right you know, yeah. like it, the threat looms over the whole thing but it takes till halfway into the running time of this movie till you actually see him and then when you do it's just a very subtle quiet performance and it's so good he's doing a lot with his with his eyes I don't know, calming and creepy at the same time. I don't know how to explain it, but it's very off-putting. Mesmerizing, but in, yeah. A, yeah, yeah. in a unsettling way. Yeah, that's a, it's a really good description of the performance. It's, I think I said somewhere, it's kind of unnerving, the familiarity he takes with Dormer. And Nolan describes it, oh, he's yeah. kind of like Dormer's conscience. And <laughs> Nolan also says he had a conversation with Robin Williams that actually kind of echoes what I... My very much hypothetical and maybe in an alternate universe kind of thing about following with Cobb's character. I said, this guy could be unreal at the end of the movie. Like maybe the young man here just imagined Cobb. And Nolan had the discussion with Robin Williams. He says, this is something only we'll talk about. But this guy, Finch, could be unreal as in he might not exist. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I was, I was very proud of myself. Yeah. But that take on the character talking to Dormer and getting in his head and then just the way they edit it too as uh, Tom Schoen talked about it you know he's always like skittering on the edge of the frame like a little will-o'-the-wisp the scene in this one that mirrors the original where he almost gets hit by the car because he's trying to trail him and follow him so where Dormer is trying to follow Finch mirrors yeah guard from the original that one where you just kind of see the rain slick in the corner of the frame and then like he looks back and like for a split second and just because you know who robin williams what he looks like you're able to recognize him this does a really good job of playing off of audience expectation of who he is and so you you see him and you're like oh there he is but why is he relevant and then he's chasing him and then finally you get that you get the ski lift scene man just so yeah good. That you're about as mysterious to me as a, what is it? A, as a block a, toilet as a block is to a plumber. A plumber. Yeah. Yeah. Just, oh, so good. And the, I think that even though, like I said, it's not quite a shot for shot thing, but it does borrow a lot of the same stuff. The, 
the next scene, the fairy scene is different when he has to chase, you know, across the logs and then he falls in and then you're with that suspenseful scene is how is he going to get out of the water is a little bit different, but it's interesting to see how Nolan took a little bit from the original and kind of mixed in whatever he wanted to do for this one. Cause especially the, the initial fog shootout scene too, I think is a little bit clearer in its visual, like both versions are very like you always know where the action is happening it doesn't break the uh the line of sight feel for anything yeah. but there's like the one 180 degree rule is never being broken but i think this one is much clearer and even brighter than the first one i don't know if that was your experience with it or not but during the fog um, chase yeah i think so yeah bit. yeah the thing i noticed about it really that actually struck me this time around was that when they go into the cabin and find there's the trapdoor. Once Dormer jumps down through the trapdoor and hits the ground, the sound just completely dies mm-hmm. for, yeah, yeah. for a little while and just goes away. And that more than the visuals kind of just grabbed my attention for a while. And I was listening for this, waiting for the sound to come back, but the score kind of takes over for a little bit there. And it's uh, not the last time. No one's going to consciously use sound design to really focus our attention somewhere or kill the sound in places to to draw attention to something. You know, he does yeah. it in Interstellar and definitely notably in yeah, yeah, uh, very much so. But I guess off of that, with the score, briefly, it's another David Julian score. It's uh, yeah. the first one they do with a full orchestra. I think Nolan mentioned this while talking about Dunkirk because he was talking about his father and his love of classical music and how he invited his dad to the studio when they were recording that because it was their first this is his first movie that they were actually recording with a full orchestra but the fog track on the soundtrack for, yeah. for this was like the star of the show for that album for me there's just this like really thumping percussion in there that really like gets inside your chest before the track turns over to more love the the string theme for the movie kind of more of the ominous rumblings like they talked about that David Julian said he put into Memento. I feel like it was the most polished of his scores. Not surprisingly, they got that studio money for this one. Yeah, um, yeah. That first, Hollywood first studio money. studio movie, yeah. It's still maybe, again, I just don't know what it is. It's maybe not the first thing I'd reach for on a casual listen, but the thing that really matters is during the movie, oh man, he just makes it all work so well together. It fits right in. It's woven in very neatly. And does exactly what it's supposed to do. It complements the action so well. And especially in the fog chase, uh, really enhanced it for me. Yeah, that one was my favorite track too. And the way that you can just, how it perfectly complements the emotion and the intensity of the moment. I also liked, really liked the intro scene, the score that goes along with that as they're hovering and flying over the glacier. Um, yeah. That one just, I don't know, I'm a sucker for nature photography like that especially when it's alaska um oh yeah there's some was, great nature photography yeah this. yeah watch this for the the shots alone that's great that waterfall shot at the end just took my breath away i'd forgotten yeah. about that yeah. yeah and like even when he falls in under the logs like you could have just been really utilitarian with that and instead it looks just really artful to me i don't know i, li- I like that one a lot mm-hmm. but no i, I like the thumping of the logs hitting each other yeah yeah, like like a human frogger situation, uh, <laughs> but the I like the 
the music that went along with that too. But take no, that pull quote out and put it on it, the title of this <laughs> of this episode: "Human Frogger," the story of Christopher Nolan's insomnia. Yes, one man's journey to get across the road, across the logs, uh, <laughs> and to the end of the road. No, I I, I agree with you. The uh, you can definitely feel the presence of you know they got studio money now they got that warner brothers money starting a relationship that would last him a very long time up until the whole debacle with tenant and we'll get into that later but uh yeah i liked the the stuff in the book a lot about the feeling of you know everyone associates nolan with memento and with batman and inception and everything but really the first time that he actually got some huge big budget stuff to work on was this movie and no one really talks about it and he's yeah. you know what 31 32 years old not really that older than you know me or you right now running right a huge studio movie which in a way i guess was good because it's you're adapting a known quantity so like there's a roadmap is there for you right like you can mm-hmm. hew to that and get to the source material a little bit more for something like this but yeah, this is the first time he's actually like played with a big studio budget and delivered. And I think that's a just an interesting little factoid is like no one really remembers this movie, which I think they should like. It's a great thriller. It's a really great police procedural. And I think like if his career ends after this movie, like he never makes Batman, he never makes Inception, he never makes Interstellar, like you'd still be left with like a really solid body of work. And this would be, you know, this is a type of movie that like isn't made anymore. Stuff like this, stuff like Manhunter, even Silence yeah. of the Lambs really like is, is not made anymore where it's just like a good like mid-level police procedural thriller with a, probably a little bit more of a thematic depth to it. Um, mm-hmm. But there's just, it's like perfect like middle budget movie for adults that isn't made anymore, which ironically... Maybe Nolan is to blame for the death of that demographic with how successful Batman became. Not really wholly his fault. It's that and and Marvel and Disney and Star Wars and everything like that. Bankability. But, uh, Bankability. Yeah, he he helped kick off that wave, as we will discuss for the next couple of episodes on that. And this movie, like it did well. It was a success. And yeah. people just forget about it really, I guess, when talking about it. And I especially, I was curious to see how it would play up on a, a revisit. And I really think that people should give this one another shot. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was a success at the box office critically. So I was reviewing the chapter for this movie in the book and he was talking about how he watched uh, a screening with a couple of the executives running Warner Brothers at the time and they were kind of like smiling and nodding at each other he said and they were looking for someone to take over Batman and they were building up their stable of like solid action movie directors according to Nolan and so yeah this really was the springboard he, he talked about it in the book he said Memento was his first quote-unquote big film because of the jump from the basically the no budget of following to then having even just a few million dollars to do Memento he still had what he needed to do. Yeah, it was an independent film, but it was more like your typical film set instead of what he had to do to scrape the the back of the drawer to make following. But yeah. he was able to build on that for Insomnia. He talked about it allowed me to go in a more mainstream studio direction. And he 
sites, like maybe not trying to repeat what he did with Memento, maybe the same, for lack of a better term, gimmicks, or just like go even further in that direction, kind of did a more conventional story, the adaptation, and talked about films going from like a tiny Sundance film to the giant blockbuster. And he says, very often I've read myself quoted as somebody who did that, but it's not what I did. It's kind of true because without, like you were talking about, Insomnia is kind of this pivotal movie because without getting his foot in the door, like he says, with Steven Soderbergh, I think George Clooney executive produced it. These two produced that. Thank goodness for those guys. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Very um, excited for, for the new Soderbergh, but yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, it's not only just like as a film, really great and just kind of an underrated, maybe partially forgotten gem, but in terms of his career, it's possibly, yeah, like the most pivotal one in terms of like, well, if this flopped or something or then you wouldn't have gotten that Batman job. That's for sure. With how cautious Warner Brothers was being with the property, with how that was at the time. And he talks about after Insomnia, it was so successful. They wanted to sign him on for more stuff. And what he wanted to try to go to immediately was Inception. So he was already there with trying to bring his big ideas and or at the very least this movie that he'd been thinking about since he was in boarding school. And also, yeah, with being his first Hollywood film, he talked about kind of how he started figuring out his process for working within the system, applying, he says, what he learned in boarding school, how to relate to an establishment you're inherently rebelling against, but can't push too far. And then deciding to work, like you have the pressure of time, the pressure of money, he says. And he says, even though they feel like restrictions at the time and you chafe against them, they're helping you make decisions. If I know that deadline is there, then my creative process ramps up exponentially. And boy, can I relate to that. That's a safe, wow. We, we yeah, are the but, <laughs> yeah. But just how he talks about it at another point too, of he says, for me to be able to work within Hollywood, what I do, I work ahead of schedule and I work under budget. So everyone leaves me alone mm-hmm. and I can do what I want. Cause that's all that Hollywood really cares about. Mm-hmm. So under promise over deliver. Yeah. <laughs> Great yeah. mantra to live by. Yeah. Talk about just a, a different time for movies. I've got box office mojo pulled up. This thing had a budget of $46 million in 2002. It's opening weekend. It opens wide in 2,600 theaters, makes almost $21 million in its opening weekend. You know, it was most, in a beats, summer most, window, wasn't it? Yeah, it's, it opened in yeah. May, and they let that thing hang out in theaters for 31 weeks. It closed actually <laughs> on my birthday in 2002. Oh, man, yeah. Uh, so this thing worldwide made $113 million off of a $46 million budget, so definitely turned a profit. Maybe not to a whole, whole lot once you factor in like ad money and uh, everything for that, but definitely made some money. Uh, yeah. Let yeah. it show 2,600. My gosh. If a movie beats 20 million in an opening weekend today, like they're green lighting, you know, 15 sequels immediately. Um, <laughs> yeah. What a, yeah, a huge, huge success for him, like you said. And if this had done badly, like who knows if we would have gotten. Batman Begins or anything else after that. So this really is kind of like the linchpin to understanding his whole career, I think. Maybe not his whole career, but like it's the the thing that allows him to do everything else, like he said. And he even still kind of, you know, even though it's an adaptation, like we talked about earlier, he managed to make it his own and make it feel like a movie that he put his own personal stamp on just because he was 
drawn to the story and its complexities like that in the first place. Yeah. 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 I'd like to call it the editing before we forget because Ooh, yes, there's yeah, some amazing yeah. stuff here. Especially um, the uh the end scene with the juxtaposition of Hillary Swank finding the bullet and him talking and Dormer talking to Finch. Yeah. And also like in small ways too, like small cuts to when he's talking on the on the phone and it like cuts to his hand, Dormer's hand and the pencil just kind of shaking, little things there. And then there's a scene where he's walked into the police department office and there's just a, this thing the camera does with like shifting focus, just the cuts allow the sh focus to shift instantaneously and that just throws you off. No, no, and then there's a cut no, no. when Finch literally says on on the phone, like seeing things yet, those little flashes and it flashes one of those memories mm -hmm. that Dormer has. And I'm just like, oh, my God, <laughs> this person really knows what she's doing. And the original one did this really well, too. So I think it took some cues from that and applied it here and did even more cool things. Man, I love a good edit. And <laughs> this was just you know, catnip for me. The greatest special effect, as Nolan always says. Ah, yes. Ah, yes. We've said it and before it, and we'll say it again before this podcast is over. It really, really went to town on using those flat, like those flash cuts to show memory, like he used in Memento, but there's, it's done so many times here. So you found a thing and they liked it and they did it over and over and they did it well. I guess in other like callbacks I want to specifically highlight that I really enjoyed. There's like a, a touch of following here where Will breaks into Finch's apartment and is looking around. And then, mm -hmm. and then he also leaves something. He leaves the gun there. Yep. So I <laughs> was like, hey, wait a minute. We've seen this movie before. Mm -hmm. Messing with your life. Even though Finch figures that one out. And then Memento, you catch Dormer using someone else's bathroom again in Finch's apartment. And then the phone starts ringing. Ooh, are we going to pick it up? Who's going to be on the other end? Who could it be? Ring, ring, so ring. little touches, you know, possibly intentional, maybe not, but we're able to make those connections and watching this in sequence. And that was pretty fun to see. For sure. And then obviously you've got the, the Manhunter connections with, uh, Will Graham and Will Dormer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then. Although I will yeah, say, I think Nolan talked about kind of pushing against that. Cause when I was rereading a couple of the things and when he was talking about Manhunter, he was kind of talking about. I was trying to go against that. There's like that manhunter thing that everyone started doing where the cops and the killers are exactly the same. And he talked about interviewing a detective to try and do some research and mm -hmm. trying to prod this real life detective in that direction. But the detective says, well, no, if this person killed her, then he's a murderer. And Nolan says he realized, right. yeah. yeah, this is like how these guys look at these things. It's pretty black and white. So I told myself, well, I was doing research. I'm going to apply that to the movie. So that's how the mysterious to me as a, as a black toilet is to apply that line. So mm -hmm. yeah, once that I had wasn't that in the original draft, no, no, they not at all. And a little simpler. Yeah. So once I had that revelation as I thought, you know, Dormer really does, you know, he's keeps the distance as, as much as Finch tries to tie them together. The film makes very clear that they are not the same. Dormer does have an obsession with trying to bring down the bad guys and then does cross a line to take down people he see, sees as needing to be brought to justice. But he's not, unlike Stellan Skarsgård's Angstrom, he's not some super fucked up, repulsive 
Like, what are you yeah. doing? Yeah. Kind of, he's more just more like a conventional anti-hero here, honestly. But yeah. in the end, yeah. he makes the right choice. And the audience, I think, for the most part, can be forgiving of some of his past sins for that. The deathbed salvation kind of trope. But he, he uses it well because he, he stops another person from making his mistake. So, yeah, no one talked about that. And I think uh, it was important to me to want to talk about that and clarify because I think he succeeded with what he was trying to do there. I don't know what you thought. Yeah, I think mostly just the the similarities I saw were the the relationship between Finch and, you know, Finch as Lecter to Dormer's Graham, basically. But the relationship in Manhunter is much more in clearly very much more mirrored, like they're trying to show a juxtaposition of, of obsession and outright, not craziness, but just how it, it can take, you know, a different form depending on what you apply that obsession to. Yeah. And here I don't think they're... to kill someone. Yeah, yeah. And here I don't think they're they're obsessed, but I think there is just much more of a... In the way that Pacino portrays the character, there are some moments, like we mentioned earlier, where he he channels William Peterson a little bit. But I think the relationship here, like we mentioned, it's his conscience, but it's also, you know, the two sides of the what's right and what's wrong, what's truth, what's not, what's, you know, your reality versus someone else's reality coin. And so Dormer can kind of see like he is a, it's black and white, but also he does operate kind of in a stage of gray too, where like whatever he does, he can rationalize it to make it be something that's black and white where he can come out right. And then someone else, like another cop who might be looking at it, in a black and white frame, like Hillary Swank might say that he came out in the wrong. So really he was right there in that situation. Whereas Finch yeah. is very much just like so good at manipulating other people to enter into that. In the book, they call it like the Faustian devil's bargain where he, he just gets people to ensnare themselves in their own little rationalizations, their own traps to where they think that they're right when really they're wrong. And that's the beauty of that character is you go the whole movie really wondering if if he did it or not or if he's just a creepy dude who is really good at getting the better the best of pacino and every other character that he comes across until the end but um it really does like where manhunter lecter existed to bring out the dark side of the obsession angle here i think it exists to bring out the dark side of the black and white rationalization part of dormer's character and i like that the two sides of the same coin a lot, which is a theme that Nolan returns to, as we've noted again and again and again. Yeah, and Dormer's a bit of a vigilante here, which is kind of a, mm-hmm. when you take Memento and Insomnia together, it's a little bit of a warm up for him. Yeah, vigilantism yeah. before he gets to Batman. Mm-hmm. So, one other n- note I think I'd like to mention before we possibly wrap things up is that uh, there's kind of the concepts going back to following of that Tom Sean mentions in the book. Um, where a lie trumps the truth, which is something that happens quite a bit in Nolan films. But in this case, ultimately at the end, that doesn't happen. It's really kind of the exception to the rule for the endings. It's, this is another part of it that I, like I mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. and obviously there's plenty of deception and lies here, but ultimately the truth is implied that the truth will out. Ellie's going to make the right report, tell the truth. Um, but, you know, normally like following a lie gets the young man locked up memento 
somewhere, somewhere in there, something at some point, there's a lie that trumps the truth for somebody. The prestige kind of does it with the dual identities or the doubles rather. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. The Dark Knight, of course. Inception maybe depends on your interpretation of the ending, but we'll get to that when we get to that. The Dark Knight Rises, even at the end, has the lie that, oh, the original Batman died, but actually not. Like, a lie trumps the truth. doesn't necessarily have to be a bad thing. It can be, be a good thing in context. But I thought it was kind of interesting. This is another kind of just against the typical grain of what you might expect from what Nolan does across his films. But, yeah, in the end, overall... I think it's incredibly well-crafted, insanely well-acted. I mean, everybody in this is great. So many great performances. Beautifully shot. And I don't think, yeah, I agree. I think this doesn't get near enough credit it deserves in Nolan's filmography. And I think we do well to remember some of the the lessons and things we learned here going forward and keep an eye on how educational it was for Nolan in terms of like the studio experience and he talks about what he learned from Pacino about the power of stars and how they can give you a connection to the audience. And like you talked about with Robin Williams, you can play with their expectations based on what people yeah, yeah. They are going to get from an actor and how you can play with that as well as with the genre in the same way. Yeah. You don't really, he doesn't really play much with the genre here. Uh, it's pretty, it's really the most straightforward play in a genre that Nolan does out of all his films, but he still made a really, really solid film here. So yeah, I'm a fan. (laughs) I am too. I think honestly, out of the ones that we've watched so far, Memento is up there for me, but I, I really like this one a lot. Uh, That's going to get a little, get a bump up in the, in the rankings here for me, whenever we do our final rankings. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree, but this one's probably going to be higher than I, if I did it like an off the top of my head ranking before we started this, this one is definitely going to be higher than I might have originally placed it. The last thing I have for you before mm-hmm. we go to the Letterboxd reviews is since you have lived in Alaska, I have a question of why don't any of these hotels, Jake, have blackout curtains? Like and we saw it in the original Insomnia and here. Why do they have these thin white Light passes through everything curtains when this is a thing that happens all the time every year. What's the deal? Please explain this to me. Uh, my best guess is because the plot demands it. <laughs> we uh, Fair I didn't stay. Fair I don't enough. remember staying in hotels a lot when we lived there, but when we first moved up there, we did not have on-base housing yet. And so they put us in the, what is it called, billeting, like the, the on-base hotel. Every single room had blackout curtains. We arrived, actually. I was reminded uh, when I was watching this earlier, the scene when they walk into the into the diner or the restaurant and the waitress is like, oh, you're from the lower 48? And he's like, yeah, how could you tell? I was like, oh, just the way you walk, you seem uncertain. You're not <laughs> from here. Our first day when we arrived there, it's the summer. And so we were like, oh, it's kind of nice outside. Sunny, obviously. Cause yeah. not very much darkness. We, like I said, in the last episode, we were never in a spot that got complete sunlight 24 hours a day. There would always be kind of like just a tiny little bit of darkness, but wasn't really a lot. And then by the time the winter rolls around, we had maybe like 30 minutes to maybe two hours of sunlight a day, which was wild. But 
the first day we arrived in Alaska, we went to go get like McDonald's or Wendy's or something because we had road tripped all the way up there. And we're in like shorts and a t-shirt and we walk in and the guy behind the counter looks, looks at my dad and he's like, you just move here? You from out of town? My dad's like, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I get it. And he's like, why am I dressed weird or something? He's like, yeah, no one around here wears shorts in the summer. You'll see come nighttime, it gets cold. And he's like, oh, okay. <laughs> so thought that was a, a pretty funny thing, but no, we had like every house. We lived in two different houses up there and both times had blackout curtains. And yeah, it's a, it's a trip, man. It's the parts about going to a bar at night, but you can still see the sunlight peeking through and, yeah, that scene yeah. where Hillary Swank is falling asleep trying to to look at the map location of the where the bullets were found at the in the fog scene, and it looks like she's just waking up in the morning, but really she's falling asleep on the couch at night. Like it's a really interesting twist on everything. I really like the and this one and the original one. I like the that twist where it, it's all in the light and everything is going to be coming to the light. Right, right, yeah. Yeah, things don't stay hidden. No, no. There. Okay. Well, I think we're at Letterboxd again. The best time. Yes. I have a good one here. Go for it. This one's from Josh Larson, uh, who's a co-host of the Film Spotting podcast, and he also writes uh, some other books on film. But his is just one sentence, and it says, Pacino was probably cast because he came pre-exhausted, which was... Pretty much my uh, my thought when I first saw him in the first scene on that plane was he just looks so touched. And like uh, so many of the other reviews that I saw in here noted that he just looks so tired and so exhausted and so just done with everything, even when the movie starts. And so I was like, oh, I'm glad everyone else picked up on that, on what he was doing, because he's I think he's really good in this movie. But oh, yeah, yeah, I thought that was that was a funny review. Yeah, I noted that, too, but just his tiredness. But he just, even before I did my rewatch, um, I wrote something like he, he just degrades and disintegrates as this movie goes on. He's just wrung out completely. And it made me tired just thinking about it is what I, mm-hmm. I wrote to myself before, before starting. So, yeah. And I love like, that whole running thing with, uh, with Finch saying like, oh yeah, my first time up here, I went five days without sleeping. And then by the end, he's like, yeah, come midnight, you're going to break my record six days without sleeping. Good job, bud. Yeah, yeah. Because I actually, I was glad Finch kept track because I was wondering at the start, I was like, how many days does he like actually go does without take? sleep? Yeah. yeah. And again, that that fluidity of time, but Finch is, has discovered here. So, so my Letterboxd review, it was actually the top one on Letterboxd, the most liked one, the most popular. But the reason, the only reason I chose it, or the main reason I chose it, is because I saw this clip from that this review references for the first time just recently. And so it was fresh in my mind coming into this movie too. So the review is by Karsten, who is at Cursed Boy. And they wrote, um, could never happen to Dunkachino. So I don't know if you know what this Dunkachino oh, thing is. I, okay. I know exactly what this Dunkachino thing is. It's uh, <laughs> What a, a, what a movie. What a it's movie. It's a clip from Jack and Jill, apparently. Adam Sandler's movie where he plays both himself, essentially, as far as I understand it, and this character's sister. I have no idea what the main thing to do with the plot is. I just remembered, oh, yeah, that's the one where that happens. Apparently, 
Al Pacino makes a cameo and does a Dunkin' Donuts commercial within this film. And he sings this yeah. stupid Dunkin' Chino jingle. And it's really, I saw the, the clip posted completely out of context, um, but saying like, don't watch this movie. I've selected the best bit for you and have the Dunkin' Chino thing. And I think they were right. You can confirm it's, this for me. It's basically, from what I remember of it, I think I saw that in a fever dream. <laughs> Adam Sandler plays Jack and Jill, and Jack is just trying to get by with his family life when his crazy sister Jill comes to visit, and then chaos ensues, and that is literally all I remember from that movie, aside from the <laughs> Dunkachino thing. I don't know why he did that other than just to have a fun laugh. Maybe he got to put food on the table for something. I don't know. You're... You are the Godfather. Don't do this. Yeah, yeah. But the, that, it's, a, it's such a yeah. crazy clip. It's so much fun. <laughs> it is fun. There's like costumed mascot people running around, and it's insane. It is a little it is a mini dream. dance number. It's yeah, it's insane. <laughs> You're right. That's the word for it. I'll go dig that up from the account I saw it from because it's it is a good laugh. It made me smile, and yeah, I had to share it with like the next yeah. person. It's like if I had to see this, you have to see this too. <laughs> can't be in my brain alone so that's why i chose the most pipes for review because it referenced dunkachino <laughs> the good old dunkachino maybe maybe he could have used a dunkachino to combat his insomnia oh man all right i have uh, i've completed the circle of, of awful jokes to start these things he could have done that instead of chewing gum put that girl in the car you know yeah yeah if only they had starbucks up in wherever in Alaska this was. I don't think it ever, like, actually. I don't think it's a real town. Yeah, yeah, just like the lake at that, where the where the final shootout happens. I just have to look it up. You know, the town might be real, the lake is not. Yeah, all right. Well, yeah. we'll leave that one hanging. We'll leave everyone up to their own interpretation or research. <laughs> in the meantime, where can people find us, Jake? Yeah, we are at uh, friends at dusk pod on Instagram and on Twitter. Uh, as long as that site is available, we are at friends at dusk. Uh, we're not getting on Hive, Mastodon, or social or any of that other stuff. We're just going to camp out on Twitter till whatever happens, happens. Yeah, um, I guess. You can also, yeah. I have tried. Have you tried moving over to any of that yet? No, I, life's, life's too busy. I just, I've, I've reserved handles just to like camp out just so no one takes my name, but I don't. The thought of having to build another one of those things from scratch exhausts me just like Al Pacino in this movie Yeah, uh, to bring it back. Anyway, I agree. <laughs> uh, you can email us at friendsatduskpod at gmail.com if you have any questions, comments, prayer requests, concerns, snide remarks. And you can find me on Instagram and Twitter, both at jakeharris4. Um, and you can find me on Letterboxd at 808jake underscore. And where can they find you, Marshall? I'm on Instagram at marshall.doig, Twitter at marshalldoig, and letterboxed at mdoig. Please send us Dunkachino coupons and like and subscribe. <laughs> and this, Especially after a- Duncan changed their rewards program. <laughs> if you like more of this, uh, this content, you can leave us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts, or if you can leave a rating on your platform of choice, please do. Uh, and also, uh, you can support us through our anchor page if you simply can't get enough of that Dunkachino. Can you <laughs> tell we record this at night? We're very, it's been a very long week for both of us. So. Yes, yes. And it's only, have, and, and Lemon, it's only Wednesday. 
we have uh, earned our Dunkachino. Um, um, you can find rest, our list of resources yeah. in the show notes. And next time we will be discussing influences on Batman Begins. So we're going to have even more Al Pacino uh, in that episode, and we will let you guys figure out what that is going to be. But yeah, that'll, I think that wraps it up. That'll do it for us uh, tonight. And we will see you next time on Friends at Dusk. Thanks for listening. Get some sleep, folks. Everyone wants my Dunkachino. Can't get enough of my Dunkachino. Kids from 7 to 17 lining up for my Dunkachino. What's my name? Dunkachino. Dunkachino.